Compliance Life details the journey to and in the role of a Chief Compliance Officer. How does one come to sit in the CCO chair? What are some of the skills a CCO needs to successfully navigate the compliance waters in any company? What are some of the top challenges CCOs have faced and how did they meet them? These questions and many others will be explored in this new podcast series. The Compliance Life is hosted by Tom Fox, and each month he'll present the story of one CCO through four episodes. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. My guest this month on The Compliance Life is Matt Silverman. Matt is not a chief compliance officer, but a director of trade compliance at Viavi. I thought it would be interesting to explore the journey to the director's seat for a trade compliance professional as it mirrors the journey of a chief compliance officer, but also has some unique twists and turns. So over this four-part podcast series in the month of December of 2021, we're going to be exploring Matt's journey, his academic background, his move from private practice to the corporate world, and then some of the unique challenges of a director of trade compliance. I know you'll enjoy this month on The Compliance Life featuring Matt Silverman. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again for another episode in this month's edition of The Compliance Life. This month, I'm visiting with Matt Silverman. Matt is the Director of Trade Compliance, and we're exploring moving to the director chair and Matt's journey on it. Matt, first of all, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Nice to be with you today. Matt, uh, as we ended our first episode, you were on the cusp of moving into the corporate world. So could you tell us, uh, after you graduated, uh, what you did and uh, really your first sort of uh, full-time gig, if I can put it that way, in the uh, trade compliance world? Yeah. So um, so as I talked about at the last episode, um, I, I graduated um, from Georgetown Law School. I, I had gotten my LLM, uh, which... Uh, it's kind of the step step after a JD for those attorneys looking to specialize. Um, international trade is a more uh, maybe rare uh, a form of an LLM nowadays. Not a lot of attorneys have them, but I used that as a kind of a springboard um, to take me to uh, my first position after my LLM was at Raytheon uh, Missile Technologies in Tucson, Arizona, um, which, as it turns out, is is where I am today. Not at Raytheon, but still in Arizona. But that was um, that was quite a while ago, and what I really had to do was start somewhat um, uh, somewhat from scratch uh, in terms of my my legal career. I had been, as I talked about before, a litigator for about four years before getting my LLM. Um, I had certainly got some good practical experience on the Hill um, and at a, at a law firm while I got my LLM, but I, I really did have to start a little bit from, and I don't, I don't mean it in a derogatory way against um, my, my job at Raytheon, but I had to start a little bit from the bottom in terms of, you know, I, I, I was looking for 
a good international trade compliance position at a reputable company. Um, Raytheon, I was very fortunate to um, that they considered my application. But I started basically as a as a contractor and not as an attorney, not as a full time attorney certainly. But I started as a a you know a um, a full time analyst contractor and working in their export import group. Um, I got really great experience. Uh, what I did was a lot of licensing so got really good experience and obviously at Raytheon we're, we're pretty much talking almost exclusively at least what I did about the um, the military and defense side so this would be the the ITAR as opposed to the EAR for those trade compla- uh, trade compliance professionals listening um, but got a lot of really good experience with managing applying for uh, export licenses and we did a lot of them at Raytheon as you can imagine so that was kind of my first foray into my real first job within international trade compliance um, again experience that I still use today I mean I have people on my team that um, that apply for licenses with the State Department and it would be kind of awkward if they did it and I had no idea what the process was and what they had to go through so that was a, a good starting point for me and then I um, I stayed with Raytheon for a little while and um, then was fortunate to get a position again not not an attorney position but certainly a full-time compliance position with um, United Technologies um, now coincidentally Raytheon and United Technologies have merged into Raytheon Technologies but but back then they were two separate companies so I went from Raytheon to United Technologies again stayed in the the aerospace uh, industry not as much on the defense side, although I certainly did do some defense work. Um, but at United Technologies, at least the area that I worked in, it was um, a lot of um, manufacturing and development of brakes for for aircraft. So both civil and defense. I got a. Um, it was a, a bit a bit of drinking from the fire hose at first, just in terms of having to learn the industry uh, and. Um, and, and doing a lot more work with commerce as opposed to just work with the State Department, which is what I had done before. Um, but again, really good initial experience for me, really substantive experience. I think that if I had been, um, if I had had too much of an ego and had said to myself, I'm only going to take an attorney position, uh, that probably wouldn't have gotten me very far because it, it, it initially what I needed to do was find um, a a, a job that offered substantive experience for me in the trade compliance field. And even though it wasn't an attorney position, it was a very substantive compliance role in international trade. And I really, again, like Raytheon, got a lot of really good experience in not just licensing, um, but kind of firsthand being able to see how a trade compliance group is run. I had a lot more visibility to our to our director of trade compliance. Um, I was managing an entire site on my own. Um, a lot, lot of what I did was, again, kind of learning day to day, but managing an entire site with highly regulated products, um, uh, a, a lot of working with engineers and HR and all the different stakeholders that now later in my career um, I, I still continue to work with. So that was a good um, a good opportunity to begin to to really b- uh, build my career prior to uh, you know where I am now as a as a director or a, um, an in-house counsel. Really good substantive compliance roles in the international trade field. So how about your move to Baker Hughes? Yeah, so so Baker Hughes, I was very fortunate that that came about. I was working at United Technologies. Um, I 
was doing really interesting substantive work, although um, I, I also had a, an itch to do more of the legal work. Um, and so what that meant was, you know, things like um, uh, voluntary disclosures, uh, due, due diligence for mergers and acquisitions, things like that. And I, I, I really wanted to transition to a legal in-house role. So after, you know, a, a couple years at Raytheon and then United Technologies, I felt like uh, I had probably had enough experience, especially with my my years practicing as a litigator, to really be seriously considered for an in-house role. So I um, I applied to Baker Hughes, um, oil field services company in in Houston, uh, and and very fortunate to get that job. And I was at Baker Hughes for a couple years. Um, Baker Hughes really gave me a lot of additional experience that I didn't even realize that I had been missing in previous roles. So again, I got to work day to day. Uh, with um, at the time their their director of, of trade compliance Ellen Smith who became a bit of a, a bit of a mentor to me and and really really showed me how a good trade compliance group is run and the day-to-day and the ins and outs and managing people um, and then got really good experience with things like anti-boycott law which up until then I had had no experience doing uh, and then you go to a uh, an oil and gas company and all of a sudden anti-boycott law becomes uh, much uh, much more visible and much more important than it would in in other industries so I did a lot of anti-boycott work I, I eventually went on to kind of head their anti-boycott program um, but again a lot going on with sanctions issues so when I had joined um, it had been uh, the previous year, I think, that a lot of the Obama administration sanctions had come down with regard to uh, Russia uh, involving their annexation of Ukraine. So I got to really delve into a lot of interesting sanctions issues and uh, and work with outside counsel for really the first time. I'd say as a compliance professional in previous jobs, I did not have the opportunity to work with outside counsel. Now as, a, as an in-house compliance professional and lawyer, I could work with outside counsel. So I learned how to manage, manage that relationship. Um, and again, I, I was given more I think substantive uh, uh, work to do, but also a lot of responsibility in terms of working with other internal stakeholders. So working with our logistics group and HR professionals and, you know, being able to head up projects and initiatives um, and, and even take, uh, you know, uh, more responsibility over some of those projects. Um, so it was a really good opportunity at Baker Hughes for me to gain a lot of very substantive experience in my first in-house counsel role as a as a trade compliance professional. So Matt, from Baker Hughes, you were able to move to your first uh, trade compliance director role. Could you tell us a little bit about that and uh, what it was like to, to move to that director seat? Yeah, so that was a um, um, that was a um, I, I guess a little um, a, a little bitter, but very sweet for me at the same time. I I really enjoyed my time at Baker Hughes. Um, we were going through some interesting times there. We had been um, um, acquired by General Electric oil and gas. And so we were going through a lot of things and the team was changing. And um, I, I was always pretty sure that I would have a job. Um, but after a couple years and with everything going on with the merger, I thought, well, maybe not a bad idea to just keep my options open. And so when I was offered a position at 
Um, Solve Composite Materials. Um, Solve is a, a Belgian company. Um, they they do a, um, a a lot of different things on the chemicals side. Um, but where I eventually went to work was for their Composite Materials division, um, sourcing into both the aerospace and um, automotive industry. Um, so Solve was um, very kind to offer me a position to direct their um, their trade compliance program there within the Composite Materials business. So I. Um, left Baker Hughes. It was um, a, a a similar to Baker Hughes in that I was, um, you know, their in-house counsel. It was very different though in that I now had a team to um, who was reporting to me, uh, a few people directly and a few people kind of dotted line, uh, and it was uh, it, it brought on whole new challenges, good challenges, but new learning experiences and really. Um, not only having to manage people, obviously, and and HR issues and helping people develop in their career, um, but also being, you know, being really the go-to person. I mean, at Baker Hughes, um, I, I certainly was the go-to person on some issues, but in the end, I, I had a director that I could look to, right, who was giving me work to do, who I could go to every day with a question or a concern. Um, when you're when you're directing a program, especially within trade compliance, there's a very good chance that you are the most knowledgeable person at that company with regard to trade compliance, right? You're chief compliance officer or your general counsel, they may or may not have very substantive experience or knowledge. Um, uh, where where I was at Solve, um, I, I, I was probably the most knowledgeable person, uh, especially from a U.S. standpoint in terms of trade compliance. So, uh, I, I had to balance that, knowing that you know there's there's not going to be a lot of other people above me who I can go to anymore. Now it's really they're my decisions to make. I you know used as I did at Baker Hughes outside counsel when we had issues and and um, developments and the regulatory um, issues that would arise. I would you know continue to use outside counsel. And honestly, I, I did have people on my team, as I do at my current job, who know more than I do, right? Who are more involved day to day, whether it's on um, customs, customs tariffs issues or specific export licensing issues, et cetera. So you have to be able, I think, as a director, and it's something I learned pretty quickly, um, even, even if you're kind of the... Um, at the top level there, you you have to do more than just delegate to people. You, you you really have to be able to, one, assume a lot of the responsibility that is that is yours, but also be able to depend on other people to to teach you a little bit and, and to get you involved in what they do day to day and depend on their knowledge um, because it's it's just impossible, uh, especially when it gets down to the details uh, within trade compliance to know as much, if not more, than a lot of the analysts and specialists and um, um, junior attorneys or compliance professionals on your team. So Matt, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I hope our listeners uh, will join us uh, for our next episode where we uh, move, uh, you move into the director's role at your uh, current company and uh, we take a look at some of the key lessons learned. So I look forward to continuing this conversation. Thanks, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. If you would like to be featured on The Compliance Life, please uh, give me an email at uh, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you like this series, please give us a rating on iTunes. 
like uh, any review and rating would definitely help get the word out about the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.